listening to Law and Justice. This is Jane Mulcahy and today I have the honour and pleasure of having Vittorio Bufaki from the Philosophy Department in UCC in to speak with me about the phenomenon of violence. So I'm really looking forward to that. We also have a feature with Garrett Carr and his book to do with the borders in Ireland, in Northern Ireland. And we had been hoping to also have someone from the Law Society in to discuss the conference that's coming up on the 30th about sexual violence and the matter of consent. But owing to issues related to uh, Hurricane Ophelia, we've lost that interview, unfortunately. Hopefully everyone listening and out there is doing okay that if you you don't have your power or you don't have water that it'll be remedied soon and in a few weeks time we'll be doing a feature all going well with Doug Kuby from the law department about disaster law which is very relevant in the context of hurricanes and natural phenomenon but we're going to without any uh, further waffling on my part I'm going to go to Vittorio now Vittorio thanks for coming into studio to talk to me today well thank you for having me You are a philosopher in the School of Philosophy at UCC. Can you tell me what type of philosopher are you, if if it's possible to uh, answer that question? Yes. So philosophers come in all shapes and sizes. And if you consider a philosophical spectrum that goes from the metaphysical to the practical, I would be very much at the practical end of the spectrum. Um, That's because my own field is political philosophy and moral philosophy. And I'm also the sort of philosopher that likes to get um, my hands dirty with the empirical world. I think that philosophers are supposed to make sense of the world out there, but we should also make the best use of all the knowledge that we have. So as a philosopher, um, I read the work of sociologists, political scientists, um, and lawyers. At the same time, my field is philosophy, and philosophy has its own methodology. Um, And I learn a great deal from my colleagues who do more abstract work. So there are two books um, that have made a very big impact on the way that I think about philosophy in general. And and these are actually not in my field. These are in epistemology, which is the philosophy of knowledge. Um, One of them is uh, Tony Cody's book on testimony. And the other one um, is by Miranda Fricker, um, a feminist philosopher called Epistemic Injustice. So I'm a philosopher who thinks that philosophy should be out there. Um, It should talk to people. Should be relevant. Should be relevant, um, because philosophers, I think, have things to say, um, not only to other philosophers. And in my own way, I've always tried to publish not only in academic journals, but more widely, so that people can read philosophy. 
Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. And so, Vittoria, you've written a number of books dealing with the subject matter of violence, including violence and social injustice. I'm wondering, is the subject of violence an unusual one for a philosopher to, to spend a lot of time engaging with? And what brought you to this, this study? Yes, the topic of violence is a bit unusual for philosophers. Um, but that's precisely the reason why I chose to do so much work on it. Um, as a philosopher and as a political philosopher, you have to make sense of the political world. And there is a great deal of violence. So it seems to me that it makes sense for a philosopher interested in politics and ethics to try to make sense of this phenomenon, which is everywhere around us. And I was surprised and, and disappointed that in the social sciences, um, everyone writes about violence. You have sociologists, you have criminologists, you have lawyers, you have political scientists. And I felt that the voice of philosophers was was a bit neglected. Um, so that's how I, I got interested in the topic. Now, in terms of exactly how it happened, um, I can actually give you a very precise date. Um, oh, good, yeah. Which is the 9th of the 11th of 2001. Okay. September 11th. So this is what happened. Um, um, <clears throat> this is when semester started um, in mid-September. So on September 11th, I was in my office and I was preparing the syllabus for a course I was going to teach the following week called Introduction to Political Philosophy. And it was your standard uh, course, political philosophy. It did a, we, we did a bit, or we were going to do a bit on social justice, a bit on liberty, equality, rights, liberalism, socialism, feminism, um, all important topics. And then my colleague knocked on my door and said, come and see this. And um, this is when the philosophy department was on Western Road. And I, we went to the Western Star, the pub that is no mm -hmm. longer there. And we were watching those scenes on the television. And I remember watching the screens and not being able to understand what was happening. Okay, um, the towers falling, you mean, and the... It was, and I just couldn't understand. It was just too big mm -hmm. um, to apprehend. So that night I went back to my office and I looked at my syllabus and I thought, this won't do. So the following week I went into the classroom and I said, you're expecting a course on introduction to political philosophy, but what happened last week is so important that we have to try to make a sense of it. Okay. And I said, I'm just going to make it up as we go along. We're going to talk about violence. We're going to talk about terrorism. We're going to talk about revolution. We, we're going to talk about war. And we have to try to understand it. And it was a difficult course. I, <clears throat> I often have a lot of visiting students from America taking the course. Um, and so it was very raw, I would imagine, that raw. year in particular, yeah. It was very raw. Um, people jumped to all sorts of conclusions. Um, and I was reading the work by philosophers on violence as I was teaching the course, because I felt it was important for me and it was important for the students. Um, and I 
kept teaching the course the following year. And as I was teaching it, I started writing my book that came out mm -hmm. in 2007, Violence and Social Justice. And then I edited two ontologies on violence and philosophy. I'm still teaching that course. Okay. Um, it has a different title. It's called yeah. Violence and War. But I think it's, in, it's important. And mm -hmm. I'm, glad, I'm glad I did it. And I, and I think I did what philosophers should do. Um, we have to make sense of it. And, and that yeah. was huge. I was just going to ask you then, for people, you know, who are not philosophers or don't think yeah. all that much about what is philosophy, is it essentially then the process of making sense of the world around us or, or, or of particular, for you, political actions or political decision-making or responses to, say, 9-11? Yes. Um, the first thing that I would say philosophy is, um, it's a search for clarity. Okay. Um, so I'm fairly traditional in my approach. Um, I take the conceptual analysis as fundamental so when we use the terms to describe political events or violence or terrorism, understanding the meaning of those terms and understanding the logic of the terms and how they relate to each other, that's how I approach the topic. So in terms of, of violence, um, I try to do two things with my students. First is try to define what violence is, which is much, much more difficult than it may appear. So questions such as, is an act of violence always by definition intentional? Now, of course, that's a big issue mm. in law. Yeah. Um, but asking the question whether you can have unintentional violence opens okay. up all areas um, of violence that are often neglected. And also the question of whether, uh, how, how do we do violence? We can do it via direct actions. We can also do it via omission. Sure, yeah. So that opens up a whole other can yeah. of worms. And yeah. once you have defined violence to the extent that you can, then you can ask the question, can it be justified? And if it can be justified, under what conditions? And how much violence can be justified? Mm. So I don't believe that there is never a justification for violence. Mm -hmm. But first, we have to understand what it is, mm. what it does. And then you ask the difficult ethical questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the work of philosophers, okay. bringing out that kind of clarity uh, to the extent that we can. And has your main focus to date been then on state or institutional violence? Because you mentioned the, the course morphed into violence and war from its original form. Or do you also deal with violence on the individual level or, or a combination? Yes, um, it's a good question. Um, because it's very hard to distinguish the individual from the context in which the individual operates. So to, to know where the individual ends and the actions of the institution begin, it's very hard um, to make that, to draw that line. Um, if you take a very difficult example, um, the uh, clerical violence, sexual violence in Ireland, um, you could argue that the, the violence was done by single individuals, but it would not have occurred if there wasn't an institutional setup mm -hmm. that made it possible 
especially the systematic cover-up. And the moving people around. And the moving people around. So was that an individual violence or was that institutional violence? Mm-hmm. I would say it was both. Yeah. Um, the thing is, if you focus on the individual, even individuals um, can be explained in certain ways, I think the responsibility of the institution is a much, much bigger issue. And in some ways, much more important issue mm-hmm. because it creates an area where individuals can do violence. Can I ask you a, yep. a slightly strange question here? I've been doing research myself about prisons and rehabilitation and the philosophy of rehabilitation. And one of the most interesting things that a psychologist said to me was that we all unlearn violence. Now, I don't know what exactly she meant by that, but I suppose that as children, we have violent tendencies. You know, we lash out when we don't have language, but that the social learning of other ways of communication, better, safer ways of communication, we stop responding with our fists or hair pulling. Do you have any any thoughts on that as a concept? Are some societies more violent than others because they don't unlearn violence in the same ways or that they, uh, for example, you wrote a piece uh, about the recent massacre in Las Vegas and how America has an awful lot of gun deaths. And, you know, is there something in American society where people hold on to violent attitudes more perhaps than other countries? That's interesting. Um, Unlearning violence is a very thought-provoking way of putting it. Um, So the assumption is that we learn violence and then we unlearn violence. And of course, there is a lot of literature that suggests that violence um, is part of our genetic makeup. And I don't know whether to believe that or not. Um, I think we're all capable of violence. And I think the opportunity to use violence is more likely to make us be what we don't want to be. Um, So whether that is a way of unlearning, I don't know. It is certainly a way of keeping it in check. Um, So in a sense, if you think that it's a natural instinct, one can justify far too much with okay. that. Um, okay. So I have a problem with that. In terms of the um, this tragedy in Las Vegas, is it something that could have happened only in America? Maybe not. Is it more likely to happen in America? Maybe yes. So what is it about America? I mean, my piece... I talk about how violence is as American as apple pie. And by that, I mean that there's a great deal of violence um, in American society. And we kind uh, of expect it almost. It doesn't surprise us. come to expect it. Um, there is violence in, um, as we know, the police with African-Americans. There is, poli- there is violence by the state to its own citizens in terms of the death penalty. America has had domestic terrorism. Um, There have been multiple mass shootings in schools and colleges. Um, And of course, there's this 
absurd, laissez-faire idea of gun laws. So people train to use guns. And so one of the things that I argue in my piece is that perhaps you're more likely to have violence when there is violence all around you. It just becomes more normal. Mm. Um, so from that point of view, you unlearn violence by creating a different mm. normality where violence yeah. doesn't occur. Is it also because people are more afraid? You know, um, I'm married to an American and he, he would say in some ways America is a much more polite society because yeah. you're afraid to be rude in case someone might pull a gun on you or, uh, you know, that the, there are just these fears that you wouldn't have in Ireland about if I'm rude to someone, it would be so unbelievably unlikely that someone would respond with fatal violence in a way that is not unthinkable. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, it's very hard to generalise on those issues. And is it primarily, though, down to the lax gun laws, these mass shootings? If, if, they were, if there was gun regulation, that would surely help, would it not? Or, or is, is there something more in the, in the psyche or in the politics or, um, yeah, the environment? Yes. I mean, I like to think that the gun laws will make a difference. Because I like to think that laws can make a difference. Okay. I don't think there is anything special about being European as opposed to being American. Mm -hmm. uh, Europe was as violent as any other place in the world until recently. So something changed. And one thing that changed after the, after the war is that we, um, in Europe, we have much more restrictive gun laws. So that made a difference. But I think there's something else that also makes a difference, and it's a question of trust. I think in Europe, we tend to have more trust in state institutions. And I mean, one reason why gun laws are what they are in America is because people believe that they have a right to protect themselves. Yeah, in the Constitution. In yeah, yeah. Yeah, constitutionally, yeah. against abuses of the state. Um, and that suggests that you cannot trust the state mm -hmm. and you have to be ready to fight the state. Yeah. Um, considering the state violence that we had in the Second World War, it is remarkable that in Europe we have more trust in the state. But we do, mm -hmm. because we think that actually the state is there to engender social justice. Uh, the state is there to protect their citizenship. Mm -hmm. It's there to protect us. Um, to pursue the common good kind of to thing. To pursue the common good, exactly. And those are things that exist in some pockets in America and not in other places. And so if you put together a lack of trust with very liberal gun laws, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. So... I, I think things can change. One more question, so Vittorio. In relation to social injustice more generally, do you think in societies that are hugely unequal or, or that don't pursue social justice as a core goal, that they're likely to be more violent? Yes. I've been trying to figure out the relationship between violence and social justice for the best part of the last 20 years and it's a difficult one because clearly 
you have scenarios where social injustice can lead to violence. So if you have a very oppressive dictatorship, people will revolt and use violence against um, dictatorships. But you can also cause injustice through violence. Um, because violence, as we were saying before, um, is, is much more complex than, than we often think. Um, it's not just direct violence. You can have indirect violence. It's not always overt. It can also be covert. And you have sophisticated cover-ups of, of violence. And when that occurs, that leads to injustice. So one leads to the other and vice versa. Okay. And I, I know I said that was the last one, but just one more yes. tiny one. In relation to sexual and gender-based yes. violence, I think this is very important because it's an ongoing problem the world over, regardless of how advanced or how equal or unequal societies are. Can you, as a philosopher, as a, as a man, a thinker, give any suggestions on how we can reduce the incidence of yes. this? I wish there was a simple solution. Mm. Obviously, you need to have the right laws in place. Okay. Um, and I think having the right laws is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because what you need is for those laws to become internalized. Okay. So that the thinking changes. The thinking changes. So the laws have to become social norms. And if that happens, then maybe things will shift. Because even if you have the best laws in the book, if they're not applied properly, if they're not applied impartially, if there is impunity, then that will not be enough. Mm. So, so I think things can change. Things can be done. I think you do need laws. You need education. You need to change the social norms. You need to change expectations. Mm. About masculinity and femininity or... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, gender roles. Gender roles. And, and you need people with the courage to stand up, um, which, is very, which is very difficult. Do you I, mean uh, victims of these things to stand up or politicians to, and writers to, to, to write about these realities? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the survivors okay. um, of, of violence um, because part of that social norm is such that survivors would almost blame themselves before okay. they blame others. Mm -hmm. And is that because of violence is done to them by the media or the legal system as well, some of the time through the adversarial process that they somehow did something to deserve the behaviour or bring it on themselves? It, it, it certainly doesn't help. Yeah. Um, it certainly doesn't help. From a more philosophical mm. point of view, it's a question of what you expect from society and what you think you deserve from society, from a just society. So so it's about selfhood almost somehow there. It is yeah. to some extent. And again, if we live in a, in a climate of impunity, then it is hard to see why anyone should stand up against, against those who hold uh, the reins of power. I published a piece last year um, mm -hmm. in a journal called Feminist Review 
on on domestic violence. It was called the ripples of violence, and I was interested in in how we think of violence as an act, and we think of an act as something that is done by perpetrator. And I think we need to rethink violence from the victim or survivor's point of view. And how it's understood by them. How it's understood by them. Because if we think of violence not just as an act, but as a phenomenon, then as such, the ripples of violence, which is what I call it, is the fact that the violence continues long after the act is finished. Mm. Um, and it involves not just the survivors, but also the people around them. Mm. Um, and this violence is... It's, it's destructive mm. in, in the worst sense of, of, of the word because it undermines people's trust with each other mm. and with the world around them. So there is a lot of work to be done. There is a massive amount of work, work to, to be done. done. But, but I think one has to be... We have to be optimistic in the sense that things are not going to change overnight, but things can change. And they've already changed if you look and back 50 years, I guess, too. And they have. Yeah. And they have. You know, it's often two steps forwards and one step backwards. And laws have to be in place. Laws have to be respected. And implemented. Implemented. And you need to back it up with education so that people internalize them. Uh, you know, I mean, we've all been reading about Weinstein. Um, Harvey, yeah. Gosh. Um, issue. And... I was talking about that to my 12-year-old daughter this morning because that's the world that she is facing. I know. Um, and it's horrible to tell a 12-year-old girl that that's the world mm. that is in front of her. Yeah, that level of male entitlement Absolutely. that some people Absolutely. display. Um, but, but it's important that she knows that it's only some. Absolutely. A very important point. It is important because otherwise... How could you get up in the morning? How could you get up in the morning? And I have to get up for her sake. Yeah. And and she has to do it. Um, And to know that she can flourish and enjoy relationships, positive relationships with men as well. Absolutely. It's important to say that. Absolutely. But what was interesting about the Weinstein case is that I think there are some powerful parallels with the clerical sex abuses right because the enabling and the, the turning away and the turning away the cover up the, the the way that people look up to people in power and assume that they deserve it almost or that they deserve it yeah. that that they are beyond laws right yeah so actually i think is it kind of like collective culpability in some ways? In that, some ways there that is. That if you, if you close your eyes and pretend that you're not seeing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, this, and this doesn't mean that we should be harsh on those who haven't spoken up. Mm-hmm. And there are good reasons why they haven't. To point the finger to one individual monster is far too easy. So going back to one of your previous yeah. questions... It's the individual, but it's the institutional, the structural system. system that does far more damage than an individual. Okay. Well, Vittoria Bufaki, thank you so much. I, I found it fascinating anyway. It was meant to be 10 minutes, folks, then 15, and, and we went on a, a bit longer than that. But thank you so much. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it.
Joining us now on the Law and Justice podcast is Gareth Carr, the author of The Rule of the Land, Walking Ireland's Border. Uh, hi Gareth, how are you getting on? I'm doing fine, thanks for having me on. No problem, no problem. For such an illustrious author like yourself, this is a real treat for us. For many of us living in the Republic of Ireland prior to the Good Friday Agreement, there was always something sinister about the border with Northern Ireland. Reading your book, it feels as though... While this feeling has dissipated somewhat, the border area remains haunted by its past. Yeah, I suppose there is something to that. When I grew up quite close to the border, most of my memories were of, of, would have been long before the Good Friday Agreement, when it was uh, check, uh, checkpoints on the Northern Irish side, military, military installations, and uh, then customs on the southern side. So going through the, the border was a bit of an ordeal. Really, for my family, probably the customs who represented the greatest risk because generally we'd be carrying a bit too much or something. Uh, so there was a sense of the border not really being a place at all, but more like a, a kind of a process that you had to go through. Um, one thing that uh, made me want to return to the border at this point and, and study it and explore it and write about it was the fact that it seems to be freed up now to be, to, to be fought over the landscape thought of as a living place rather than just this sort of process but you're right all the same it's not exactly wholly uh, rehabilitated yet there are there is a sense of hauntedness about it although it's very hard to judge if i'm carrying that with me or if that's actually something there in the landscape there is a lot of abandonment a lot of empty houses so yeah a haunted field yes certainly in certain stretches i think that probably is the case there's also a lot of work going on on the ground uh people trying to open up certain parts of it and encourage visitors and things like that and there are stretches of the border that really surprise me by their by their beauty really and and uh, and uh, the, the atmosphere of my folks was quite sad. so for example south armaz trying to get a bit of a walkers yeah get myself to get as, a, as a sort of a walking destination and there's a place called the cabin burn as well which is a set of old uh, prehistoric tombs and um, walls that uh, and they're starting to uh, uh, take advantage of these things and uh, to encourage visitors. Yeah. So those are all new things. And like the border, it almost felt like something that was imposed upon the landscape prior to 1998, like an inentrable barrier. But that's more like a state of mind as such, the way you're describing it. Yeah, but it was never really an impenetrable barrier, you know, even even at the height of the troubles, it was only really the roads that were that were uh, defended. I mean, there was no wall there. I mean, I suppose people in Ireland are aware of that, but I think when you kind of go further afield, some people have the impression that maybe Ireland's border was sort of fenced. They might have images of the watchtowers and helicopters and they kind of think of this, uh, probably the image of it blends a little bit with the Berlin Wall. Um, but that was never the case in Ireland's border. I mean, indeed, most of those images of the really heavily uh, patrolled sections comes from really the, uh, well, I suppose Fermanagh and Armagh areas. A lot of it's quite, it's always been sort of quite open country. Um, imposed on the landscape is an interesting phrase, yeah. I, I suppose there are places where you can kind of see the logic of it, you know. A lot of it follows water. Yeah. Uh, which is a sort of a can make a sort of a natural enough boundary. So the Blackwater River is fairly substantial, running there between Armagh and and Monaghan. Obviously, Loch Foyle, Foyle River, Carlingford. There's all kind of places, but they you can kind of see how a frontier would develop along these places, and you reach back to history. Carlingford Loch, for example, was it was the the extent of the Norman. Pit. 
pale. Anything beyond that was considered uh, a dangerous sort of area to wander into. So there is a kind of an historical sort of trace that runs through many parts of the border, and you can you can see how it, it was a site of, of a sort of divergence where cultures evolved slightly differently to the north and to the south of it. So so when the internet when when those county boundaries were sort of uh, promoted to the role of international frontier, certainly all sorts of uh, of illogical and slightly crazy things resulted because the county boundaries weren't ideally suited to that job. Yes, yes. And I, I love the phrase you use on, on your website, watchful architecture. Um, but of course it, it it couldn't watch over people who are using stepping stones and fords and crossing the border through fields, but it's an interesting idea. There's layer upon layer upon layer of this watchful architecture across the border or in the region of the border. Yeah, but I, I started making maps of the border, and I had a map called the Map of Watchful Architecture, which was a history of defensive forms along the border. And uh, what happens is certain themes start to repeat such as claiming high ground, which which connects an Elizabethan watchtower to a to a one from the British Army from the 1970s, and uh, even even the uh, the Dorsey, which I found is a fascinating sort of a, an ancient sort of gateway into the old kingdom of Ulster, about 2,000 years old, and so uh, I had to I had to design symbols to describe all these things on the on the on the map. And I came up with a kind of a, a checkpoint symbol that describes the Dorsey. But it's also I also used to describe the checkpoints of the trolls. And I think today what happens is the police, the Garda Shia pull over the buses going from Belfast uh, to Dublin sometimes to make sure there's no illegal immigration going on via that route. And so I use the same symbol for them. Yeah. And uh, what happens is you end up, I end up connecting themes across thousands of years of history. But in a modern uh, point of view, on a practical level, I mean, families now might live in one jurisdiction, work in the other, or send their kids to school in another. Uh, how How is the, the modern incarnation, the post-Brexit incarnation of, of the border going to look like? I mean, is it possible to have something akin to the M50 toll, you know, that will hardly deter criminal gangs that operate on the border today? No. Um, what is it going to look like? I, I keep a close eye on all this, but I read interviews and commentary and the whole lot. And at the end of the day, the conclusion is that nobody really knows, and I don't know either. Yeah. Um, one thing about uh, along the M50 is you already have a fair bit of smuggling we got of diesel. So the, the problem with that is that so you already have sort of criminal networks in place. You already have the skills in place to... Uh, start exploiting any sort of price differences that open up. So very quickly um, after the UK leaves the EU, when prices start to gap, gap start to wipe, when uh, smuggling of other things becomes profitable, then very quickly you'll probably see it going on 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 a large scale. What is it going to look like? I don't know. Everybody seems to be slowly moving towards the idea of that there'll be no physical infrastructure on the border. Yeah. Um, On balance of all the stuff I've read, it sounds to me like you're looking at probably a few miles inside each border, sort of uh, side lane stations where trucks pull in and have their cargoes checked against the sort of the, the, the documents from the original importation. 
perhaps that will, is what we're going to end up with yeah it's really hard to say though it is still hard to say and we're, we're what less than two years out maybe four years out depending on how how the, the crossover period lasts um, you get the sense from your book that the border people or the people who occupy the border lands they're a pragmatic and industrious uh, people um, they have the skill set necessary to overcome all the problems associated with whatever the border could look like in a few years time yeah I mean it's, it's obviously very reductive when you start making generalisations about whole bunches of people but I couldn't help but sense that I was kind of I felt like I was walking through a different sort of culture yeah and I kind of I ended up concluding that the border hadn't really just divided the island into, into two places and divided into three the north and the south and the borderland which is its own thing and pragmatic practical yeah I suppose there is something to that because you've got people who are living in two systems so which adds this kind of layer of complexity to their life but also a certain amount of opportunity as well so yes you might prefer to, have, to live in Donegal but you might prefer yeah, um, and that can be done. People are doing that, but of course that adds another layer, sort of bureaucracy to your life, and there's much more to negotiate and handle. So I dare say um, they will. Uh, they will. They will already have had, had a bit of practice <laughs> in dealing with the border, and as the border hardens, then uh, uh, they're going to have to up their game. Yeah. Um, but yes, I suppose they probably will, and maybe even they'll find opportunities in it. I mean, the worry is that you're going to return to uh, to a culture of smuggling on the border. Yeah. Which which a lot of people sort of romanticise a bit, and indeed along the border, everyone's got stories about white boys and what they got away with, you know. Yeah. But really, it was it's not it's, it it isn't something we should welcome the return of because what you have is then you have a whole lot of people who are living. Uh, there's just this sort of slight bit of illegality to what everybody's doing. Yeah. Um, you know, if you just have to hop two miles up the road to get, uh, I don't know, a DVD player for 10% cheaper, then most people are going to do it. Yeah. And nobody's really going to judge you for that either. Yeah, yeah. But what happens is everybody's losing something already because then everyone becomes a bit of a rule bender. And uh, and I think that they, what, what happens overall is a, is a kind of a loss there to a society. And one thing that's really great about the border now is that it's, opened up there's a looseness about it and and it's actually a kind of it is a, it's, a, it's a freedom you know yeah to be able to live wholly openly and honestly yeah you can't just go to the north and just buy whatever you want or you go to the south and just buy whatever you want and there's no sort of uh, legal grey area about any of that activity and that's actually a great liberty and uh, it would be, be a real tragedy if we lose that and just going back to what you said at the very start it seems like just now as we're discovering the border region, the borderlands as you call it in the book and um, the various archaeo- the various pieces of archaeology history, uh, even the landscape, it would be a shame now at this point in time to lose it all to what could be a, some form of physical border in, in the future. Absolutely, well when I started, one thing I wanted to do was I wanted a more sort of optimistic look at Ireland's border and see it as a place of sort of opportunity, which I think is yeah. But then about halfway along the whole Brexit thing happened and suddenly uh, I realised that maybe actually this is actually just a short term thing, maybe this is just a blip. It felt like when I was beginning that opening, the uh, softening of borders was just something that was going to 
Yeah. Um, but then things have taken things have taken a different kind of turn, and it doesn't seem like Ireland's the trajectory of Ireland's borders to get softer. It actually seems like maybe the last twenty years has just been a sort of a blip in its history, and and in actual fact, it'll just be this really small window that we might look back on with great nostalgia and say, Ah, oh, do you remember that? Yeah. was Alan Drum with Garrett Carr. Um, you've been listening to Law and Justice with Jay Mulcahy on the 17th of October 2017. Joining me in studio was Vittorio Bufaki. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another show. Thanks so much for listening, folks. All the best.
Now 